Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 296. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 296 you're listening to. My guest today is producer-engineer Max Perry, Brooklyn-born and currently residing now in the Bay Area. Max has worked with artists such as Post Malone, Jay Boog, and Wiz Khalifa, among many others. And he is my guest today, talking to us from Oakland, California. Max Perry, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about being a team player. I am guilty in the past of being bullheaded, stubborn as hell, uh, set in my ways, even at a young age, and not being flexible with people. I've done that, primarily in my early 20s, or in my late 20s, too. But on occasion, I've caught myself in my older age doing it, too. And I have to stop myself because I know better. And I know that a lot of you who are listening, who are more experienced, and some of you far more experienced than me, you know better as well. Those of you that don't have a lot of experience, hear me out. When you're working with a a group of people on a regular basis, it's easy to be a team player in some respects because a hierarchy starts to evolve and everybody kind of knows everybody's strengths and weaknesses. And that can be good and that can be bad. But all in all, you have a familiarity with the people you're working with. That's when you're working with people on a regular basis. It's when you're not working with people on a regular basis that you're meeting people for the the first time. And I'm thinking of maybe some location sound folks, folks who are making records. That's when you can get yourself into situations where you're with a lot of unfamiliar people and you need to quickly adapt to the environment, adapt to the group of people that you're with. So I just got off a call with a group of guys that I'm going to do a record with in October. And it's, it's kind of an unusual uh, situation, not one I'm used to. And this band has a history. They have a history with each other. They have a history that goes back to the 80s. And therefore, my goal in this is to make them as comfortable as possible, capture what they need, and do the job so that they hear back what they need to hear back. Because ultimately, I'm not going to mix this project I'm talking about. And in this call, some things were brought up that maybe I didn't think of or maybe uh, I wasn't used to. And instead of being a total dickhead about it and saying, nope, I do it this way and that's the only way I do it, you know, I just can't do that in this case. I feel that it's vital, you know, to take into consideration what people are saying and say, yeah, there's no reason why we can't add those mics into the situation. There's no reason why we can't add, you know, of course we'll have some DIs on the guitars that I wasn't thinking we were going to have DIs on the guitars. That's not a problem. It's a matter of putting up tracks, capturing them, and whether the person who mixes it is going to use them or not, that's up to them. And that's not, you know, a decision that I'm going to make, but I would like to provide all the possibilities that they're asking for so that their project can be a success to them. Sometimes these situations, I think a lot of you will notice that there's always somebody, especially these days, there's somebody who has some recording knowledge. 
I think it's a gut reaction for those of us that are more experienced and know that they're more experienced than that person to try to pull rank on them and not listen to their ideas. And I think that that's a mistake. I think that you want to make them comfortable because if they're comfortable, then they're not going to be a pain in your butt later on. It's important to listen to what they have to say, try to implement some of their ideas. And, you know, and I'm not saying this to be facetious and I'm not saying don't be insincere about it. If you like the idea, compliment them on it and say, oh yeah, I really like your idea that we're doing this. And I like your idea of this better than my idea. I'm glad we went with that. You want to draw everybody into the project so that they're they're happy and that they're comfortable. Uh, because if you got one uncomfortable person, especially in a studio situation making a record, we all know that that is just a recipe for disaster. That can really add bad vibes to the room and create tension that is completely unnecessary. Not much more to say about this. It's just important that you not be insecure about your own situation. If you're being brought into a project and you're being paid your rate that you asked for and you're being asked to do things in a particular way, uh, there's no reason why you can't accommodate. So keep a positive attitude, stay focused, try to keep the clients happy. Always be willing to pull back a little bit on your own viewpoint and listen to the other person. And I'll leave you with this final thought. When I was in high school and I was playing snare drum in the marching band, the spot of the snare drum position was always like a key spot. Everybody wanted that. And I was very fortunate that I was able to get that spot. We always told the, the, the new snare drummers coming in and we always reiterated it to one another that always assume when you're playing that you're wrong and listen to the person next to you. And that way, everybody's listening to one another and playing as one. And you know, when it comes to marching bands, those of you that have listened to marching bands, there's nothing like listening to a snare drum line that is just like completely in sync. And if you take that approach to the studio, out in the field, on location, in a post-production room, uh, wherever you're working with people doing recording and audio, it can be an incredible uh, dynamic when you have everybody in sync. So thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, 
you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Max Perry here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Max, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. Great to meet you. We'll jump right in. You grew up in New York. Brooklyn, New York. And your father, Fredro, is that how you say his name, Fredro? It's it's well, it's really Fred, but it, he goes by Fredro. Fredro, okay. Yeah. He was a drummer, songwriter, producer, owned a label. But your uncle, Richard Perry, of course, he was a yeah. producer. He worked with Rod Stewart, Carly Simon, Art Garfunkel, Tiny Tim. He worked with some, with some pretty heavy-duty people. Tell me about the influence of your dad and your uncle in your life. Incredible. My uncle... Obviously, he gave me the inspiration to know that, like, the highest points of success were real. But my dad gave me a scope of how the entire business works. He gave me my foundation for all my business knowledge as far as, like, publishing and copyrights and PROs and everything I needed to know or contracts. He had a lawyer that I ended up using, I had a lawyer when I was like 17. So I was like real versed in contracts and copyrights. Like I have a, I have a copyright form back from the library of Congress that my mother had assigned because I wasn't 18 yet. I, I was like 16 <laughs> or 17 years old. It was hilarious. And I'm over there with like trying my best penmanship, trying to make sure it's all legible. So I really had a serious passion for like adhering to the preset logistics of how the business worked. I always liked doing things in an unofficial manner. My dad always, just like in life as a man, like taught me to always put my best foot forward and to just try my hardest always and like really don't compete with anyone, just try to outdo yourself. And so, yeah, my dad really gave me the foundation on a lot of the things, both music and music business oriented, but just like life as a person, you know what I mean? And just on another note, just him and my mother were huge concert goers. Like they would bring me to, I would be running around backstage in my diapers at Santana concerts, just going crazy or like on my dad's shoulders at a Billy Idol concert. And like I think Billy Idol was the first concert I ever went to. So they, I was just always just flooded with music always. 
And yeah, that really like definitely broadened my horizon, helped me incorporate that into my taste of music now. So my dad, yeah, he really, he, he, he did everything for me. You know, it's interesting that you, you took to it because, and th this is the parent in me speaking, is that my kids started out playing bass and drums, but then they kind of pulled back from it. And I wonder if it's because I'm involved in audio and music and they saw that as that's dad's thing. But you, you took to it. Did you ever rebel against it? No, I didn't. I really didn't start doing music until I was like 16. Oh. And oh, actually, no, I, I won't say when I was like 10, he got me a gu guitar uh -huh. and I was definitely like into it a little bit. But honestly, the whole mechanics of the way your wrist has to be didn't really flow with me for some reason. It kind of hurt a little bit. The hand positioning was a lot to get used to, which, but I mean, I now I wish I, I wish I would have stuck with it. You know what I mean? But I don't know if mm -hmm. I would have been the musician I am today. If I, yeah, I, it's, you know, different routes, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I, it, it found me naturally like way later, but music, as far as like a consumer and an, a professional, like appreciator, if you will, I always felt like I had pretty good taste in music and especially like, you know, I'm a producer, so beats in general. And then when I started doing music, I, well, I started doing music really under kind of like the tutelage of my older brother. Because he was a, he was a producer and a rap. He still is producer, rapper, songwriter. He like walked me through my first beat over the phone. And it was just like a violin sample. I actually still have it. I have every beat I've ever done <laughs> still on, on zip disks. I have my MPC in the closet if I ever really need it. Wow. On zip disks. Yeah, zip disks. I have my zip drive still. And scuzzy cables. Scuzzy cables. Oh, my God. I can't, can't remember the last time I heard that, that phrase, scuzzy cables. When, when the little pins on the inside of the scuzzy, scuzzy cable bent, you would have to find a new cable. <laughs> and by the time that happened, they were already like discontinued. It's crazy, like the things that we used to have to go through mm -hmm. to even make music. Now you can just like, you know, laptop, download a program, you're in the game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is incredible. You know, what's incredible to me, though, is the family aspect of your music and recording world it's it seems important it seems like it's it's been crucial i mentioned your father and your uncle you've talked about your mother your brother are there any other family members that have been influential it actually starts with my grandparents hmm. so my grandparents were both really big in not necessarily music business but the the music education world so like in the 40s they started a company called parapol and they manufacture and distribute musical instruments to schools all over the world. And also my grandmother taught music at Brooklyn College. She was a classically taught pianist. She passed away a few years ago. My uncle runs a business now, but the business still exists. There were in schools all over the world. And she had a great appreciation for music and passed that down to her sons, which then in turn, they passed it down to their sons and yeah, so the the musical, even like my sister who doesn't do music, like she sings as a hobby, you know what I mean? So it's it's definitely very ingrained in us. Generally for a lot of people, music first enters their world and then they discover recording. Tell me about your discovery of the act of recording. I'm still discovering the act of recording every day. <laughs> this is never ending. Like, I know, you even and me like, both. Even if I get like a, a new instrument, like my new single that comes out Friday, I got someone to play 
flute on it. And I'm over here like, what kind of mic do I record with flute? Do I get a Royer 122 ribbon or do I just use a condenser? I got a tube mic over here. And I never went to school for recording or music or anything. Not that I advocate this, but I dropped out of high school. It's a roll of the dice that it's still unraveling. Right. So, you know, the music business obviously is such a unsecured world. Yeah. That, you know, we just got to keep working tirelessly until we get where we want to be in our heads. Well, so what were your first recording experiences? So my first recording experiences just ever as just a bystander, just going with my dad to different studios while he was recording and then to a level where like I'm going to the studio with my brother and he wrote me a rap verse and I recorded my first verse, which is probably like my only verse I've ever recorded. And that was like 14. And then, then moving into making beats, which then evolves into incorporating a DAW and tracking out my beats and then recording my first songs by myself of other artists, obviously, and kind of dealing with sound quality issues and sound absorption and acoustics and things that were never a factor in my head before. And then learning equipment, different go-to pieces, different legendary pieces, how compressors work, how EQ works. When I started mixing and like really working as an engineer, like I said, I'm, I'm still always learning. I feel like if you're not learning, you're not living. Agreed. Yeah, like I, I don't care if there's an intern here and I see him do like a quick key for a Pro Tools command. I'm like, oh, what's that? And I get all <laughs> juiced. I, I, I really don't have any ego with learning. I'm always just a sponge with everyone. Everyone could stand to learn from everyone. So you ended up not staying in New York. No. Long term. How long did you live in New York? My whole life. Your whole life? Well, yeah, my uh, uh, well, up until 25. Okay, okay. Yeah, but I grew up in New York, yeah. Why did you leave? Well, there's multiple reasons. New York was, especially New York hip-hop, I'm predominantly a hip-hop producer. New York hip-hop was in a weird place. Mm. It was in a weird, we were having like an identity crisis where the South was like killing it. And we almost had to feel like we had to sound like the South in order to be relevant. And then another thing, major New York studios were closing like crazy. Mm. So Sony Studios, one of my favorite studios in New York, closed down. Great studios like The Cutting Room moved to a smaller location. I think Chung King closed, or I don't know if Chung King is closed, but Hit Factory closed. There was just a bunch of studios, legendary spots that were more profitable to the owners as condos. So mm. that starts making it so the hub of creating music starts moving elsewhere. And LA was killing it with the studio. So like, honestly, a lot of people started going to LA. Some people started going to Miami. And the lack of artists being in the local area is gonna result in a decrease in the music for just the general area. So New York was at a weird spot. And also on a side note, like I'm a big cannabis advocate and in New York at that time, weed was practically like crack. And uh. as far as like the laws are concerned, people are getting arrested for roaches. And like now it's one of the biggest businesses and industries in the country. And it's projected to be one of the biggest businesses in the world. I just wanted to live in an area where doing something that's completely beneficial to people and not harming anyone isn't going to result in you being perceived as a criminal. Right. That was definitely a big factor. And 
I had been coming out here previously to visit family and stuff like that. And I would be working with different artists and selling beats. So I knew I could kind of support myself as a musician, which didn't happen at first. I came out here and, you know, was sleeping on a couple of friends' couches, was working at Guitar Center for a couple of years. Uh -huh. and, th and then I was in Guitar Center getting like placements. I was just goofing off basically to the point where my boss, who was actually really cool, he's like, man, you don't belong here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, let's just, you're fired, but it's going to be the best thing that ever happened. And it really was. That was in 2010. And that was my last regular job. And then I've been doing music ever since. I, I went to Hawaii. I was running a multi-million dollar studio out there for a couple of years. Well, we both have something in common then. Really? We both have been fired from Guitar Center. Oh, yeah. Nice. I, I, but I got fired in 1989. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> they didn't even have computers. Well, they had computers to look up stuff, but not in the sense that they do today. And you could smoke in the store at that time. So that's all I did. I sat in the drum department just chain smoking because I, I was a smoker at the time. Actually in the department? In the department, in the store. Wow. All day long. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. I used to have to go to the parking lot to smoke a joint. <laughs> yeah. And people were, yeah, it's a long story. People were dealing coke out of the warehouse. It was. Oh it was, my God. It was not a, good, not a fantastic good, good, situation. Good old times. <laughs> yeah. Good old times. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, moving out here in what year? You said 2009? February 19th, 2008. 2008. Okay. About right in the middle of the, the financial crisis. And so you had to get a job at Guitar Center. Yeah. And how did that feel to you? Because I'm sure, like, you come from New York. Soul crushing. Yeah. You've built up <laughs> a, a thing. And then you come here and you're like, ah. Oh. Well, I definitely wasn't built up yet. Like I had, I was working with some artists and selling beats here and there, but it definitely wasn't a sustainable lifestyle yet. And it took really diversifying my income streams, mainly engineering. Like I was producing and I was selling beats, but it's like selling beats isn't like an everyday thing. I'm still not a huge fan of the online beat sales, even though I have a friend that literally made a million dollars in a year from selling dollar beats. So this is where you're going to have to tell me this like I'm a fifth grader because I'm a drummer first and have been for many years. I'm also a rock guy. So can you dissect that for the audience who doesn't understand that or is curious about possibly doing it? What is sure. involved in that? So, okay, there's three different types of beat sales. There's what I would like to call official business, which is like, you're doing contracted work with a company or entity. All the business terms are outlined, negotiated. It's all good. Then there's kind of street business. And then there's online beat sales. So in my opinion, those are like the three different ways of operating. Now, if you want to break down an official beat sale with a company, usually they would propose terms. I always highly recommend. Me personally, I don't have a manager. I have a lawyer. That's my protection system. And just me, myself, knowing the business for myself, as a matter of fact. But they would present you with terms. You send it to your representation. They try to negotiate more favorable terms for you if they can't. But usually a standard thing is you would get an upfront fee. So let's just say $5,000 just to throw a number on it. You would get your upfront fee of $5,000, mm -hmm. usually half when you sign the contract and the other half when the record comes out, depending on what the orientation of the paperwork is. 
that money is basically a loan. So that money is a loan against your future royalties from the master, which as a producer would be three to 6%. Obviously that would be depend on your leverage and who you are and stuff like that. But you would get three to 6% on the exploitation of the master. You would then get, obviously everything is negotiable, but as far as a standard thing, you would get 50% of the publishing. Hmm. And if you are not in a publishing or publishing administration deal, you are a self-published writer, which means you not only own your percentages of the writer's share, but of the publisher's share. One crazy misconception is I'm the label. I put out the record. I published it. That's not what that means. So when specifically with song registration, the three different titles, songwriter, publisher, publishing administrator, the songwriter obviously writes the song. The publisher owns the copyright to that song. And then the publishing administrator is the collection and licensing agent for that copyright. Okay. So a lot of people end up giving up their publisher side because they think it means something other than what it does. So you get your 50% of the publishing, you get your three to six points, you get your upfront fee, which is recoupable from the master points, that kind of covers on an official deal. We have kind of more informal deals that are more in the gray area, kind of like street deals where it's like, oh, here's a thousand dollars, here's the beat. People probably still split publishing, but a lot of times with independent clients, they keep the master and that kind of sucks. When you're talking about a beat though, we're not just talking a beat, we're actually talking a backing track, am I correct? Yeah, yeah, like so, so in the case of a hip hop song, there's the artist that's singing or rapping. Every other element, the drums, the music, everything, that would be called a beat. And does that have to comprise a verse, a chorus, a bridge? Well, the arrangement of the music isn't like a prerequisite of it being a beat. That's kind of just refinement, if mm -hmm. you will. Okay. But yeah, I mean, it's all part of it. And is it something that is done enough that there are standards that people expect as far as like what the music should be structured like no about the more about the business honestly man for the most part people are goofy as hell yeah i was gonna say is it like the wild they, west yeah like a they have tons of preconceived notions of how things should be so ideals are killing people two they have no factual point of reference to sometimes even have an opinion on it. They're all thinking things are like, for the people who think, oh, I put the record out, I'm the publisher, I publish it. Like, that's not even what that means. Just ownership in general, to just give an analogy that is more common, if I sell you my car and I don't transfer the title and you don't, I don't sign over the pink slip, and then you go and get into five accidents, I'm liable for those accidents because the title is still in my name. The car is effectively still my property. And it doesn't matter if you paid me a million dollars for the car. Got it. So the same thing for music. Now the law, the, the US copyright law states that when you make a song tangible, meaning write it on paper or record it in any form, luckily in this day and age, everything we're doing is computer-based, so there's a timestamp. That timestamp is literally your copyright. It's the proof of inception. Hmm. So like, 
me and you are making a song. I'm on the piano, you're singing. We have a song in theory because we're playing it. But as soon as we record it and make it tangible, we have a copyright. And when you have a copyright, it's what it says, it's rights. It's not W-R-I-T-E, it's R-I-G-H-T. It's representative of our rights to that intellectual property. And the copyright gives you the right to reproduce, the right to distribute, the right to publicly perform, the right to digital transmission, the right to synchronization and publicly perform or display. I'm not sure if I'm forgetting one more, but. This is like a masterclass in how this is done. I mean, you obviously have yeah. spent some time with your lawyer. Yeah, I mean, I actually have done kind of several masterclasses before. I'm, I'm really into passing this information on to people and giving them the ammo in order to level up. Because it's one thing when you walk into a room going to negotiate something and you have no clue what you're talking about. Sometimes it's the stuff that you're not saying that makes you look green. Mm. And people's awareness, this business has gone on before any of us existed. So there's a certain element of needing to adhere to the system in order to bend and change it to your will. But you got to know the rules. You got to know the rules of the game to change the rules of the game. And people don't even realize that there's a system in play and have no awareness in order to have respect for it. I have to ask, have you been involved in situations where you got screwed on this? Definitely. Okay. Definitely. So a lot, a lot of this is speaking from the experience of what not to do and how yeah. to understand it. So, I mean, I'm not going to mention the person just because it's not important, but I fell out with an artist that I worked with for a, a really long time, did a lot of music together, stuff that has millions and millions of plays. You know what I mean? Yeah. He kept all the master and he told me to sue him out of his mouth, told me to sue him. Hmm. I thought that was kind of wild. I'm like, bro, I did 55 records for you. No, nothing. And so that frustrating situation inspired me to create my publishing administration company called Intellectual Property Collections or IP Collections for short, IPC. In a month or two, it'll kind of be like the two-year anniversary, but really started getting up and running in January 2019. I have like close to 50 clients now. A lot of my brothers and sisters from the Bay Area, fellow musicians, and really helping people fully collect all the royalties that they're just leaving on the table and eventually are becoming black box royalties, which is a whole crazy subject in itself. That's like a whole nother, that's like an hour too long conversation with. We'll have to save that for another talk. Yeah, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that one is honestly the biggest, it's like $2.5 billion a year that's going into a fund that companies are then keeping the interest from. And it's all of our uncollected royalties. Or even like if we have a song registered and it's missing information or got the wrong info, you're not going to get paid. It's going black box. Or if you wait too long to register, if you wait more than a couple of years, your money's gone. And billion dollar corporations are then going to profit and absorb that money. Wow. I tell you something, if I ever need advice on any of this, you're the first person I'm going to call. Please, please. <laughs> I'd love to. I mean, all this stuff that I preach and I talk about, at one time, I learned it for the first time, and it had a life-changing effect on my life. Mm -hmm. Publishing had a major effect on my financial life, being able to sustain myself 
as a quote professional musician because at the end of the day whatever there's like justin bieber success i'm not really in this to be famous i'm in this to do music at a high level to have the respect of my peers more than anything and obviously success in business is great but fame isn't really my thing so to simply be a working musician i have kids you know what i mean mm -hmm. and support them and live a good life i do that 100 percent off music and to me that's like the biggest success so how old are your kids if i may ask my son is six years old and then i had a stepson he's 13. and how do you manage the work-life balance with family it's really hard when i was having my son i was completely terrified <laughs> I was supporting myself as a musician, but it was rocky. There was times I was flat broke and I was like, what is this gonna mean for me? In hindsight, it was the greatest thing that ever happened. It lit the biggest fire under my ass that I kind of predicted was gonna happen, but didn't realize the magnitude of it. I had to balance it. I feel like just as dads, as musician dads or professional musician dads or whatever the case may be, you can't lose yourself. I just feel like as a parent, yes, the kid obviously fundamentally comes first, but just like they tell you on an airplane, you have to put on your mask first. Like I can't tend to you if I'm suffocating. Right, great analogy, great analogy. You know, I'm sure you as a dad, I'm sure you relate in, in ways. In order for me to tend to you, I have to be a well-balanced person and part of everyone's balance is their own little happiness inside. And this music thing is definitely my dream. And also my dream come true. I'm definitely living my dream. There was times as he was a baby, I would have to have him there and I'm making beats, little things like that. Or like now he's older and he's like all over the place. Like he's riding his bike now and stuff like that. Or he might be in the, in the other room watching TV and I have to be here doing publishing or mixing a record or making a beat or running a Spotify campaign. Now that he's getting older, I want him around more. I want him to see what his dad does because I think he's starting to get it. Weird little things like kids these days are so hooked on YouTube, but seeing some of my songs on YouTube and being like, oh, that's dad. And to them, YouTube, even though like we know it's so accessible, to them, it's so official. Oh yeah. And like, I could be showing him my Grammys and he's like, no, dad, YouTube. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I want him to see his dad just like in full mode. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. 
They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Tell me about your time in Hawaii. Oh, yeah. At Wash House Studios, working with yes. a lot of reggae artists. How did that come about? Still working with Wash House to this day. Those are my brothers. My older brother produced a lot of songs for Mac Dre. Mm -hmm. And then the owner of Wash House, very good friend of mine, Jonas Teal, who's also my business partner in IP Collections. He was one of the executive producers for a lot of that Mac Dre stuff. So him and my brother had like a long working relationship. And then years later, he met up with a mutual friend of ours and kind of expressed interest in needing an engineer producer and kind of put us together. And that was kind of it. I was there engineering, making beats for their artists, and then had the opportunity. They were building a studio in Hawaii, had the opportunity to go out there for a couple of years off and on and run the studio and it was like multi-million dollar spot. Hmm. SSL duality, tons of mics, beautiful room. And, and it was like practically in our backyard, like the SSL was in the backyard. <laughs> it was crazy. And so yeah, I got to work with Jay Boog, which led to a few Grammy nominations, which is an incredible dream come true and incredible blessing with Fiji, who's like the godfather of Polynesian music, Morgan Heritage, Soja, trying to think who else, probably leaving out some names, but yeah, incredible experience. And Hawaii is such a special place to just be able to soak up that energy was, was amazing. How do you get work? Is it word of mouth? Do you promote yourself? What, what do you do to actively keep the work flowing? I go, I go like this every night and just pray that the work, <laughs> no, uh, really you can't depend on any one revenue stream. So up until 2010, I was just making beats. And then I forgot who paid me for something. Someone paid me for something. And I'm like, hey, this is more money. I'm not gonna lose out on this check. So I started engineering. Then I started getting good, so I started mixing. And then I was kind of dabbling and mastering, so I started doing that. And then different little things like doing consulting and then obviously the publishing administration, like I'm just trying to fill voids in the marketplace wherever they may be and kind of solve problems. I feel like you really need to do that in order to survive. Anybody listening to the show knows that I am like the preacher of diversification. <laughs> yeah. First of all, it satisfies all my tendencies of, oh, I want to try this, I want to try that. But it also, it sustains you financially. And I can't say enough about it. I'm a huge fan of, of the concept. The world of music is like almost like the world of sports. And there's all the players involved and, and the stats of the players. And I'm just going to admit to you that I was doing my research on you and 
obviously I know who Wiz Khalifa is and Snoop Dogg and you mentioned Mac Dre, but I have to be honest with you, Max, there's so many people I read on here that I'm like, I don't even know who that is. And I thought- Under, Yeah, it happens. And hip hop itself is not just a one trick pony. It's like rock in that there's a million rock bands of multiple genres that I've never even heard of. I see these names and they're like, oh, they're huge in the dark metal scene in Switzerland. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Didn't know. So <laughs> yeah. how do you keep up with, I mean, you primarily stay in the lane of hip hop, right? Primarily. That's kind of like the lane that I feel most comfortable in and what I have a natural passion for. But I'm more someone who caters to whoever I'm working with. Okay. So if I'm working with Boog, we're in reggae mode and I'm not going to try to like, force feed some like hip hop stuff down his throat. How do you maintain like your knowledge of all of the different offshoots from hip hop? Man, I just try to stay like a sponge. Okay. But also in the same token that I try to tap in with what's going on, I also try to stay like completely away from everything that's going on in order to just not be on some like cookie cutter stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And really come from an internal inspiration opposed to just an external inspiration because I feel like everyone is just primarily externally inspired these days, just kind of like copying what the next person is doing, especially in hip hop. And I just feel like you got to keep the balance. Do you try to stay up on what is happening in the charts? What's, what's trending? What's popular? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A good general awareness. There could be a song that's like, I'm not going to mention naming it, but there's a song right now that's like humongous. And to me, it's terrible. But it's like, there's still something to be learned from it. Oh. Anyone that's in a successful position is there because they play the cards right. So you might not like the song, but something in the execution of their plan worked. And that's to be studied and to be learned from. And maybe you don't like the song, but their marketing strategy was great. That could then be applied to your great song. So I think a general awareness of things like that are important for other little subtle factors. Mm -hmm. But I don't, like I said, I don't get too heavily swayed. Like, oh, Drake came out with this type of song this week. It went number one. Now we got to switch our whole sound. I'm not really that kind of guy, but you can't be oblivious to what's going on, but you got to remain grounded in where your specialness lies. And do you get inspired by other genres and try to bring in those those ideas into the, the world that you mainly stay in? Definitely. Melody is universal. So it doesn't matter what genre. You could have a techno song that's 128 with a four on a floor or a rock song that's whatever, like in the 80s and then or like a, a trap hip hop song that's like in the 60 BPM. And they could be sharing a melody line. And so like really melody is universal. So like I always, or different sounds, I'm always like a, a sound absorber. Like I'm like, ooh, that sounds, I wanna, how do I replicate what they did? Or And plus I also genuinely love other genres of music. I listen to other genres of music. So I mean, everything that you listen to period gets soaked up by your subconscious, whether you know it or not. Do you feel that Grammys necessarily generate more work because it's that prestige or is that not true for you? Well, A, I haven't won one yet. I got nominated for three in a row, which was cool. Okay. So I haven't got the big W yet. Honestly, that doesn't necessarily, the win doesn't define me 
as well, nor do I think it should define anyone. Even though it's an incredible honor, I'm also on the board of the San Francisco chapter of the Recording Academy. So definitely heavily involved. But yeah, this game is a whole perception-based thing in general. It's so weird. Like I just got verified on Instagram like a week or two ago. And it's funny, like certain people treating me a little different. It's almost like I'm a little bit more official now. It's so I'm like behind the scenes laughing about it. I mean, these are all notches under the belt that we all strive to attain and continue to strive to attain even when we get them. So in that respect, it's really dope. It's fulfilling. To answer the question, I guess it does ultimately bring some more work in, but I feel like that's still completely predicated on, like they say, you're only as good as your last hit. Right. So like, let's just say like, you know, you were making music every day and then like thought you were the shit and then stopped making music for a year because you were going around town trying to whatever act like you were something you weren't then all of a sudden when you try to make a beat for someone live in the studio it's gonna be a little rusty so yeah i feel like you know ultimately your current musical skills and how effectively you conduct yourself as a businessman will determine your long lasting flow of work what are some of the big mistakes that you have learned from in your past? As a producer and like a, a producer businessman, definitely knowing how deals work and not getting so caught up by like, oh, they haven't responded or I haven't got the paperwork yet or the lawyer hasn't got like, just calm yourself and take time. These things are not fast paced things and knowing how publishing works and how that whole world operates and then like as an engineer, the proper ethics as an engineer is you're not supposed to put yourself in the creative pot. You're not supposed to really give your opinion on the artist. You're not supposed to throw yourself in the creative process. It's not your process to throw yourself in. Unless you have that relationship with the artist and you're like, nah, man, you're part of the team. Like, I need to know what you think. Like you're, you're part of this creative process, even though you're not a songwriter or something. Then that's another thing. So that being said, sometimes you'll have situations where you're giving artists like advice on vocal production and they're like, nah, man, I got this, I got this. And they're just like goofy as hell. Mm -hmm. um, at a certain point, I'm gonna shut my mouth because I'm not gonna waste my energy. And it took, a, it, took a, it took situations of like trying to beat a dead horse to learn that that was never gonna work. And so I pretty much tell someone something twice and then I'm shutting up about it. So that was definitely a good game as far as an engineer. Always stay with a lawyer. Stay with a 500-an-hour lawyer. <laughs> and is that somebody that you keep on retainer, or is that somebody that, you know... Uh, it, de when it depends on the situation with your legal representation, but it could be either way. It can be an hourly thing. It could be a $5,000 retainer. It's all like just like a contract. It's all what you work out. Not just any lawyer, an entertainment lawyer, right? Not a divorce attorney, not someone who does real estate, not someone who does corporate law, not your mother's friend's brother that got someone off of a weed charge. You need someone that does entertainment contracts, specifically music, because you might have a lawyer that they're an entertainment lawyer, but and they could handle it, but they handle like movies and shit. Like they don't know the fine nuances and logistics of like the hip hop world. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. and like how we operate. Like, so like you gotta know, 
You got to have someone that has a good frame of reference of your world, and you need an entertainment lawyer specifically to do that. And how does one figure out what lawyer to get? That's hard. Yeah. That's not easy. I feel like there's many businesses where they can take your money and you can't hold them accountable. That's kind of sometimes what I, I feel like they do work. I mean, me personally, my lawyer is amazing. She's she's great. But just the nature of lawyers in general, there's always the possibility of juicing that retainer, overcharging. Oh, this contract took me five hours to draft for you, but they took a template and just changed a couple of things. It really took them an hour or two. And probably their paralegal did the work. Yeah. So like, you got to stay on top of things and make sure you're not dealing with someone that's just juicing you. Yeah. Let's talk about day-to-day -day survival now. Yeah. Especially in this current time of the pandemic. How are you doing? Are you surviving? Is it working out for you? There's elements of struggle always, but I've honestly feel like that this has been a blessing in a lot of ways. Hmm. I know that obviously the worldwide ramifications health ramifications. Obviously, there's there's no denying that. But I'm home a lot anyway. Being at home and like working all day, this is honestly, this has been my life every day. So my life as far as like what it is hasn't really changed that much as far as like I'm home all the time anyway. Like I'm home working. My studio's here. I'm, I'm always working. So there's that. And I mean, like little things like the environment got noticeably better like quickly mm -hmm. we're with our families more we're less stressed out because not being on the hustle and bustle of everything or whatever the case may be so i think that the deck is being reshuffled so mm. on a larger thing this is a reshuffle of the deck you need to be on top of your shit right now and finding a way to make this situation a blessing because when the deck gets reshuffled, you want to be on top of the deck. And you don't want to be that person at home that's been drinking all day and just been watching TV and, oh, whatever, uh, like I'm taking a vacation. Like now is not the time to take a vacation. Now is the time to work like an animal. Like me personally, I've, I've kind of been busier than ever. Like on the publishing side of things, my client base doubled since March. I had about 20 plus clients. Now I have close to 50 clients. And that's like people sitting home like, shit, I need some extra money. Where's where's this money that I'm not collecting? Let me holler at Max. He's he's on it. <laughs> so there's that. And then me personally, you know, I'm an artist also. I said like not traditionally, but I remarketed myself the producer as the artist. So kind of like a DJ Khaled kind of thing. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Oh yeah. And like other producers that come out with albums, but they're never, they never get on the mic. That like I, my artistry is really like the music and I get artists that I work with to feature on the record. So I've been like really busy putting out records. I have a new single that comes out Friday with legendary Chicago MC Twista, legendary Bay Area MC Mr. Fab, and up and coming singer songwriter Jane Hancock, super talented. And so I've been like real busy doing that, staying on top of releases, staying on, and I'm running my own label. So it's, you know, I got to stay on top of the graphics videos, promotional campaigns, budgeting, the actual delivery of the releases. Like there's there's so many different little intangibles and little things that we don't think about when putting together a project. So 
all of that has been keeping me super busy. I've been busier than ever to the point where I kind of have to retire from engineering a little bit huh? because I, I really need to concentrate on my publishing company and making beats and putting out records, just things that are going to change my life in a major way. My engineering obviously took a huge hit financially on my day-to-day -day engineering because obviously, A, I can't have people that I don't know and haven't been vetted, new clients, which I get all the time, mm -hmm. come in, the nature of of recording. Look, in order to record, I have to be on this mic and I can't use a facial covering because it's gonna muffle the quality and the nuances of my vocals. So safe, COVID safe recording literally doesn't exist. So my day-to-day -day studio business pretty much took a screeching halt. Thank God for the CARE Act, the CARES Act that enabled self-employed independent contractors to collect unemployment. And I'm such a huge advocate. There's so many different grants out there for musicians, for relief, for COVID, for, for specifically for musicians. And just for everyone listening, the link in my bio of my Instagram page, which is at Max Perry Music, in my link tree, there's three different grants specifically for musicians. One's for $5,000, another one's for $1,000, another one is up to $3,000. So there's help that is completely out there for us, for, for professional musicians and artists of, of all different kinds. So I definitely encourage everyone to be aware of that. And being a musician was hard enough before. Mm -hmm. There's no security for us. So everyone get that help, get that help and keep working. Like there's SBA loans to inject money into your business that have like really favorable terms. So that's definitely been a lifesaver for hmm. me. It's definitely been a struggle, but in a lot of ways I'm busier than ever, which is an extreme blessing. And we just got to find the blessing in this tragedy and, and, you know, just stay safe and stay healthy and remain focused. This is not the time to take that unemployment money and go buy some Jordans or go on a vacation or do any of that <laughs> shit. This is not the time to be misappropriating funds. Yeah. At all. Like, I don't buy, like, you know what I mean? I like, I would love to go get a new wardrobe or go get whatever. Like, this is, you wanna see the extent of my purchases right now? Right here, a little $65 speaker. <laughs> Just so I can make beats outside and watch my kid ride his bike. Well, I'll make sure and put a link in the show notes to your Instagram and the Linktree part of that. Other than the Instagram thing, where can people find out more about you? Twitter at Max Perry Music, Facebook.com slash Max Perry Music, SoundCloud.com slash Max Perry Music. Stay on top of my Spotify. I got songs releasing all the time. Now, do you release under Max Perry or Maxwell Smart? Maxwell Smart's kind of like my old AKA. But so, yeah, under, under my name, Max Perry, under my label, The Elevation, distributed through 1RPM, great company, and did just put out a project earlier in March with my brother ST Spin, Oakland MC. And then now just getting ready to put out the second single from my first production EP called The Million Mile Journey. And like five to eight songs, something like that. I don't wanna I wanna keep it loose. And uh, and then getting ready to drop an, another EP 
shortly after and then just try, trying to trying to figure out what projects I want to work on next. I'd love to find an artist, which is incredibly hard. That's what it's about, right? You got you got to put in the time and the effort and the hard work. I'm a high school dropout. I've been doing music for 20 years. I don't know what else to do with myself. This is my life. Like I love this. I thrive on this stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm a lifer. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. I know that we were juggling dates and times and 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 Zoom meetings, and I appreciate you making time for me. It's great to great to talk to you. Now I know who I'm going to call when I have uh, intellectual property questions. Please do, please do. I, I I take no prisoners. I I make sure that whoever I'm talking to is, has the the real uncut info. Well, thanks, Max. Great to meet you, and you take care. Thanks, brother. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Max Perry here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank Anne-Marie Plo for her editing, Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his lovely voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Head on over to workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.